Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 14. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 14. And welcome, welcome, welcome. I know I say it every time, and uh, this is going to be no different, but oh my gosh, we're on 14. I'm stunned that this thing keeps going. But, you know, there is an endless supply of people to talk to with very fascinating stories. And today is no different. I'm going to be hopping on a call here with Sylvia Massey, known for her work with Tool, Johnny Cash, System of a Down. We'll talk all about it. Very, very excited to be talking with Sylvia and uh, been in the industry quite some time and uh, definitely has a perspective that uh, I look forward to hearing. So hope all of you are well. Want to, of course, give a shout out as I like to do to a specific geographic location where we have fans listening to the podcast. And I've been thinking a lot of places outside the United States. So back to the U.S. for a shout out to our friends over in Michigan. Of course, Detroit, Livonia, Royal Oak, Rochester Hills, Ann Arbor, Charter Township of Clinton, which I've never heard of. Hello, Charter Township of Clinton. East Lansing, Grand Haven, Houghton, Marquette Township. Oh, wait, wait, wait. There's more. There's more. Midland, Novi, Traverse City, which I have been to. I've actually been to Dearborn. I've actually been numerous places in Michigan. And of course, West West Bloomfield Township. So greetings, my Michigan listeners. And thanks for tuning in. I appreciate your uh, your attention. Continue to spread the word. You may be aware that we are moving from two shows a month to approximately four shows. Uh, I'm going to put out a show once a week. Uh, obviously, some months have five weeks in them, so there's going to be a couple bonus months there. But uh, yeah, we're going to be picking up the pace. I have lined up a ton of interviews. I've already done a ton of interviews and have backlogged a few interviews. So I have some very cool people coming your way, and I really look forward to you hearing them. Very excited about that. So most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable, You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pres to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps, 
or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. So here we go. We're going to jump into our interview here with Sylvia Massey and hear what Sylvia has to say, share some experience and wisdom with us about her path through the world of recording. Pretty exciting. So welcome. We'll talk after the interview. Welcome, Sylvia Massey. Hello. You are a a person that has been in the industry for quite some time and done a lot of of fascinating things. Well, thank you. Yeah, I've I've uh, kind of uh, survived uh, 30 years doing this, and, and I love every minute of it still, every day. I, I just uh, I pinch myself that I can come down here to the studio and, and hang out. <laughs> Where are you living now? You uh, Chris mentioned Oregon. Right. The studio has been moved into a fabulous old church in Ashland, Oregon. It was in a town called Weed in an old vaudevillian theater for 15 years uh, in Northern California. But last year, we made the big move up here into Ashland, back to civilization, basically. And we've set up the recording facility inside the church. It's It's an active church at the same time. Um, so we've actually started our own religion, and we have services on Sunday, and why not? Yeah. Well, I, I saw on your website that uh, you're an ordained minister. That's right. Yeah. I've been a, a minister for several years before finding this fabulous church property. I, I've kind of had a way of recording that was a bit unconventional from the beginning, and that's why it worked in the Vaudevillian Theater in Weed, is uh, because um, I like big open spaces, and the theater was acoustically treated for music and performance without amplification, and those spaces are really special. The same with churches. Churches are inspirational rooms that are designed to carry sound without amplification, basically. So we've uh, incorporated the studio into the main sanctuary hall of the church just by moving out the, the last rows of pews 
and putting the Neve console in there. There's a Neve 8038 console with 1073s. There's no control room. It's all open. So when we're tracking, we use headphones uh, when we're doing initial tracking. And then if we do overdubs, then it's all done without headphones. Let's go back quite a bit. I want to go back to around 1985, San Francisco. Uh, are you from San Francisco? I lived in San Francisco for quite a while. Yeah, I, I, I finished to high school. Well, kind of, if you could call it finished high school, I actually dropped out <laughs> uh, in the East Bay and uh, uh, started my Recorded career in San Francisco, yes. Where in the East Bay? Concord. So you started out around 1985, and you were doing. Uh, it's. I'm. I'm looking at your Wikipedia page. It says you're. You know, working on this rap music for rap people, Volume Three, a compilation record. But then, what's fascinating is, is it jumps into the 90s, and quite quickly, from my perspective, you're. You're. It seems like you were immediately working with some very heavy people. And I'm kind of curious about that transition. What got you to Aerosmith, working with Aerosmith or Danzig or the Black Crows? Well, when I was in San Francisco, I uh, worked at a at a record label called CD Presents, and they did a lot of uh, basically punk rock, San Francisco-style albums. I was in their in-house. I helped build their in-house studio and run it. And a very young Kirk Hammett came in to produce a band called the Sea Hags, San Francisco band. I remember. And, uh, yeah, I got to co-produce that album with him. Uh, I was the engineer and co-producer. It came out fantastic. And then they got a deal out of that uh, indie record. They got a deal with Chrysalis, which was a big deal for for me because I thought, well, here's my big chance. This is my uh, This will be my first major label record. Uh, working with Sea Hags on Chrysalis. But, and this was my first slap in the face of reality, uh, the band went to L.A. to work with Mike Klink, who was just hot on the end of the Guns N' Roses. So it kind of got, the rug got pulled out from under me. And I'm sitting in San Francisco and I'm thinking to myself, well, why didn't I get this gig? And I realized, well, I'm in San Francisco. You know, they don't even know what I can do. In L.A. So I'm going to L.A. And I packed my bags and went to L.A. And whenever you make a big move into any new situation, it will take two years before you actually get your feet under you. And that's around 1990. Uh, I, I uh, tried several places trying to get jobs in, um, in uh, Los Angeles uh, in recording because I had a good discography behind me and I had lots of experience and but really you're starting from scratch when you move to LA so I couldn't get a job with a traditional you know uh, resume or whatever uh, and, and I just took a job at Tower Records on Sunset which was that the place right there uh, it was kind of a a scene <laughs> yeah and there were many people that worked there with me at Tower that went on to do great things in fact before I started working at Tower, Axel and Slash both worked at that Tower uh, <laughs> in the video department, I guess. But while I was there, there were members from a band, a Buffalo, New York band called Green Jello. They had two drummers, and one of the drummers would, was Danny Carey, and he um, had a startup band called Tool. Um, Is that Green Jello or Jelly? Well, it started with Jello until uh, <laughs> General Mills told them to 
cut it out and, you know, they couldn't use that name. And then it became Jelly. Got it. At one point, I was still knocking on doors, trying to get into the studios, even though I had a job at Tower. Um, and I took so I took a radical approach at at one point. I was frustrated, and I and uh, I thought, well, I'm going to just do something crazy. What what could hurt? I'll do something crazy. So I made instead of a traditional resume, I made uh, something that. Uh, mimic the cover of Weekly World News. Have you ever seen that? Oh, you know, yeah. Fat boy and, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I made a, a, a fake Weekly World News cover that had a headline that said, uh, Elvis is back from the dead and he's taking he's taken this poor engineer hostage. So the evil Elvis has taken me hostage. And I said, the only way you can save her is by giving her a job. And then I started handing that around with my my t- traditional resume stapled to it. And I'd walk into the front door of these studios and I'd hand them the, the new, improved, you know, fake weekly world news cover. Suddenly I got four job offers in one day. It, it went from me working at Tower Records one day to working as an assistant for Phil Ramone at Lionshare Studios the next day. Wow. With Barbara Streisand, it was such a radical change, uh, and from there on, it was just uh, one project after another. Um, I got a regular staff gig at Larrabee Sound and worked there for three or four years, and that's where I got connected in with Prince and the Aerosmith project. And in the evening, I was working on. Um, you know, on off time, I would work on my own projects, including recording this band Green Jelly or Green Jello at the time. And I mixed their indie record there. And from that, they got a contract with Zoo, which was part of BMG. So we went into the studio to record the uh, Zoo album with Green Jello. And the drummer, Danny Carey, says, Well, you know, my band Tool, we need to record an EP. And since the drums were set up, we just recorded the Tool EP right there. And that was the start of my relationship with Tool. Was, uh, was, it was just a kind of in tandem with a Green Jelly, Green Jello project. But yeah, that Tool band was always fantastic. I used to go see them play at Raji's and they just had a great energy. So I was excited to work with them. At that point, you're friends with Danny, and yeah. I assume. So as you're working with him, did it occur to you that, wow, this could be wildly popular? You know, after we finished the Undertow album, Danny and I listened to it from top to bottom after it was mixed and came back from mastering. And we thought, you know, this thing sounds so weird. This record is so strange sounding compared to other things happening. But it was so exciting to listen to. So we had no idea what it would do, but we knew it was a great album. So I wasn't that surprised when it did start really catch and hold. And it was the video that really sent it skyrocketing. So you did Undertow and then you did Opiate with them. Yeah. As is the case with most engineers, most producers in relationship to bands, we have our time with them and then they move on. Did you have a similar feeling when they went on to to make their next record? Was it a similar feeling that you had with the Sea Hags? Was it like, oh man, what's going on? How come we can't do another record? Well, you know, uh, it, that came down to more about negotiating points because uh, 
the band uh, at that point didn't want to didn't want to pay royalties to oh. for for the next album, and um, and I really thought uh, since I'd gotten points on the uh, on the uh, undertow that I would be getting points continuing to work with them again. In fact, we started pre-production, but it broke down, the, the negotiations broke down for the points, and I'd done two records with them already. I didn't have to do another record with them. And I had an opportunity with Rick Rubin to work with Johnny Cash on Unchained. Oh. And there, so I thought, well, you know, I'm going to make a choice here. We can continue with the, the negotiations. And ultimately, they did offer points but at that point i'd already committed to working on the johnny cash record you know there's no hard feelings with that not in that particular case and it, it could have been painful but it wasn't you know i think everyone like you say we all move on and i wanted to stretch my wings into another genre of music which is the roots country and um so um I jumped into the Johnny Cash thing instead. I don't know if it's just the pace of, of our conversation with regards to, you know, one minute I'm working on Tool and the next I'm, I'm, you know, getting offered to work on Johnny Cash. Did you just have like a roller coaster ride of a, of a time there in L.A., just jumping from one record to the next? Or was there great spans of space between those records? Well, that's, you know, it's a funny thing about our business and being self-employed is that when you're busy, you can't see the end. Of it. it just goes on and on and you're jumping from one thing to another and, and one project goes over and then it cramps you in the start of your next project. Um, and there's, it's a lot of stress and a lot of, uh, and a very little sleep. But those, those spans, once you hit the end of a, a run, are really frightening because uh, sometimes you can't even see what your next gig is going to be. And you just have to have faith <laughs> and you have to have good planning. You know, when you, when you make money, um, make sure you have a reserve uh, for when you're waiting between gigs. Yeah. And, and how was that at that time period for you? Did you have a reserve and, and were there times where you're like, well, wow, I'm making great major label records here with big budgets and yet, were you still struggling to survive at that point? No, actually, the 90s were fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, um, at the point where, um, you know, here I was at Tower, and then I got um, the tool successes. The royalties came in from that, and I very wisely purchased that Neve console, the 8038. And honestly, that has been a source of income for me from 1994 when I brought it over from London till today. I mean, it's it's really been a good reason of why I continue to work. The, the console actually makes it so easy to do great records. And, I, and I'll, ha I'll admit it, you know, there's a bit of, of magic in having that Neve. Uh, it just makes me look good, you know, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe on another console, uh, the records won't sound as good, but they'll always sound good on that Neve. So uh, I have a secret weapon. Let's just talk briefly about this time with Rick Rubin. How did that come about? Rick Rubin and I actually, our relationship started all the way back in the Sea Hags because the Sea Hags record uh, got the attention of a lot of people. I believe that Rick was really interested in it, and the Sea Hag record went to him early. 
Um, then when I worked at Larrabee, we reconnected as I was an assistant there. Uh, he realized that I did the Sea Hags record. So he started giving me post-production jobs with editing and additional recording. And then after the tool successes, then we would really be kind of running into each other quite a bit at these shows when there were new bands bubbling under, like System of a Down. Uh, the System of a Down record actually was something we were both interested in producing. And we discussed it. And he had an advantage because he had the label, the, the American a recordings label, and he signed them to American. And part of that deal was that he was going to produce. So I got knocked out of that. But I love that band so much that I called him up and I said, Rick, I want to, I want to engineer this record with you producing because we'd done some work before. Mm -hmm. You know, I just know from how he produces that I would have an opportunity to really dig in and get to know the music and really make a difference on that record. So that was one of the first big projects with Rick. And then he also um, trusted me with the Johnny Cash thing. With the, I'm very honored to have been uh, working on that project with him. I, I admire his, uh, his production sense. You know, he gets a bad rap for not always being in the room. But what he does is he's like a... He's like a chef, I suppose, mm -hmm. where he he designs the the menu and he's written all the recipes. He puts the people in the room together. He he says, "Okay, here's Johnny Cash. I'm going to give him this backup band, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. That's going to be his backup band. Okay, I'm going to find this music. We're going to have Johnny sing a Soundgarden song." you know, and put that in the mix, okay? And he's going to have me engineer it, and he, we're going to record it at Sound City. So he puts it all together, and then he sits back and he watches what happens. You know, he, he doesn't have to be in the room 100% of the time. However, during those Johnny Cash sessions, actually, he was there all the time. Uh, so, but I just really admire what he does. He is a fan of the music, and he kind of approaches production from a, a fan's per perspective. Yeah, maybe maybe with that perspective that he has and not being a technician, uh, maybe he sees the forest for the trees better than most. I think so. I mean, he actually listens, you know, and that's one thing some of us forget <laughs> to do. Yes, we, we engineers can get caught up in the minutia of, of the recording process, whereas he does, he's not burdened with that. No, exactly. Obviously, it's worked well for him. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> done very well. Well, that's interesting. So that speaks to early relationships. And as far as the, the, the recording industry, it's, it is a small world. Looking back, knowing what you know now, do you have any observations to share with the audience about like relationships, whether they be record company people or producers or other engineers coming up? What are your, do you have a perspective or a philosophy about that? Well, one thing to, to always keep in mind is that no matter who you're dealing with, with whether they're a manager or a, a drum tech or the receptionist at a studio or at a label or wherever, um, th that person might might make the difference in you getting a 
a gig later on. You must treat everyone with respect because honestly, you never know what that person will be doing in the future. So that's that's my attitude about it. Be really careful with that too because uh, I've I've uh, worked with some young kids who really think that they've got more going for them than they do and ultimately they alienate themselves from getting jobs later on because they are become kind of untouchable you know that's a that's a good piece of advice it, and it raises the question for me so you know you treat everyone with respect and cuz as you say you never know what influence that person or persons are going to have in your life in the future how do you deal with people who have a lack of humility or or uh, really walk into a situation whether they be you know maybe it's an assistant engineer, uh, an intern, or maybe it's a band who don't seem to share that same sense of, of humanity and, and really wanting to, um, you know, treat you with respect or treat everybody else in the room with respect. Well, uh, I've had a few situations where um, assistants or, you know, up and coming engineers where I've had to actually kick them out of sessions just because they don't know the studio protocol. Mm-hmm. And there is kind of a, a spoken or unspoken rule of the hierarchy inside a session uh, where you, you just kind of stay clear of having opinions. And it really depends on the person, though. On occasion, I'll have a, a young engineer come in and start piping up and start you know, pushing other people out of the way to do something. And then I look at them and I go, wow, that person right there has really got some great ideas. I'm just going to let them go with it, you know. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, if the arrogance is making everyone uncomfortable, then they just got to go. So, yeah, it's something to be careful about. Let's say from the perspective of the assistant engineer, the up-and-coming assistant engineer, it's like, what's the line of being meek versus being assertive and being right. uh-huh and you know like uh, there's one one person i'm thinking of in particular his name's Kale Holmes and he came to assist at um the studio in weed and his first session he basically pushed the engineer out of the way and took over the session and i came in and saw this and i thought well what's going on here this you know am i you know should i kick this kid out you know because he he really pushed the engineer right out of the way and then i thought well maybe this engineer's really not got guts to you know handle the session so i let it ha- i let it uh, continue and uh Kale was fantastic but the reason why Kale worked uh why that worked for Kale is because he actually did have humility and he would immediately after the session go into the kitchen and clean it top to bottom, uh, you know. So he wasn't um, he wasn't above doing the grind, the menial stuff in the studio either. Which is, I think, important that you you really need to accept the fact you're going to to pay some dues. You're going to be making coffee and cleaning up and doing some of these things. Um, you know, if you're assertive, you'll probably get into a better position sooner. How long did you live in L.A.? How long did you stay there? I was there about 15 years. 
I know at some point you made a transition to Weed, California, correct? Right. I was looking for a, a place outside of Los Angeles to um, basically to retire and have kids, you know? Before that transition happened, what led up to that decision or that desire to get out of Los Angeles? The biological clock with women, it's mm. different for us girls. Of, of course, yes. And you get to be a certain age and it's like, well, am I going to find, uh, you know, the family happiness that I want in Los Angeles? And it, I thought, you know what? No, I don't think so. So I started looking around for different places to live to, to set up a studio outside of Los Angeles. Okay, and, okay. Uh, that's why that all happened. I see. You know, other than the desire to have a family, uh, did any of your decision making have to do with what was going on in the industry? What I'm not sure what year that was. Well, for me, uh, it was around uh, 1998 or 99. Okay. Uh, it was kind of at the peak of of um, the work that I had going on in Los Angeles, and in fact, I moved. And immediately um, had two big hit records. Uh, one was the System of a Down album, uh, their debut, which really took off. And then the other one was a, uh, an album by Powerman 5000. And there was a song called Worlds Collide that got a lot of airplay and did really well in sales also. So the phone was ringing off the hook and the whole time, it went, you know, as soon as I arrived in uh, in Weed, and I had to s scramble to set up a recording studio. Otherwise, I was going to be doing work in uh, living out of hotel rooms, and I did that for a while before the studio was set up. When you were living in Los Angeles, uh, did you have a manager? I did. I had a great manager, Frank McDonough, and he still manages producers today. I think he manages Andrew Sheps. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So is when you came to Los Angeles at this point in time, was there kind of a protocol of, okay, if you're going to be, you know, a recording engineer and a producer in this town, obviously you, you need a manager. Is that just what everybody does? Yes. In the nineties, everybody had a manager. There was a handful of producer managers and they handled all the big names and, uh, it was hard to get a manager, uh, one of these managers, but, uh, once you got it, uh, once uh, you were uh, on the roster with like Frank McDonough, you were offered much better jobs, much higher pay, and all the label reps would go directly to the producer managers first. How did you and Frank come to, to work together? Oh, I was knocking on his door early on, and it wasn't until the Undertow album that all the managers came knocking on my door. It's like, if you have a hit record, all of a sudden things change. All you need is one hit record. Do you have to be in the producer role for that or can you be the engineer? It's better if you're the producer. I think they, it's, a, it's a lot harder to sell, sell yourself or, or for a manager to sell you as an engineer only. Got because it. most producers have their own favorite engineers that they'll, they'll always carry with them. As an engineer, is it a harder, harder schlep? You know, if you're a mix engineer, that's a whole other story. And that's where you can do really well. 
as a, a just an engineer, as a tracking I engineer, I have a, a tracking engineer, much harder time, much harder time. That that would be in the '90s. I'm not really sure what it's like today. I I don't know that you even need a manager today. Mm-hmm. You know, a producer manager. I think everyone it, you can do self promotion so easily. If you have a good website that has your discography on it, that's very clear and easy how to to contact you. I think you can do very well. Interesting, huh? Oh. So uh, then you moved to Weed and you set up Radio Star Studios at uh, the Weed Palace Theater, correct? That's right. What made you choose Weed? Well, it was the guy. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a funky little town, three thousand people in the shadow of an immense volcano called Mount Shasta, and. Uh, and I bought a, a 50 acre ranch and had animals and though, you know, life was really quite dramatically different than it was in Los Angeles. And I loved it for a long time. Uh, but it, it's very remote out there. Not a lot of culture. We'd, we'd drive an hour to go get groceries. You know, once a week I would go up for provisions, basically <laughs> drive to Oregon to go get provisions, you know, uh, Go to Costco and buy a pallet exactly. of cheese. Yeah, <laughs> giant, giant slabs of meat and barbecue, and uh, yeah, the life was good. And boy, the studio just kicked ass there too. It was five rooms, and all of them were booked solid. It was crazy in the in the middle of nowhere, basically. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say in the yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah, I still and and this was in the in kind of the dark days of, of studios too. I really have yet to wrap my head around how it happened, but we managed to draw in uh, a lot of international work, great bands from everywhere, every side of the globe uh, and everywhere in the United States. I think the, the, the studio became known as a kind of a resort destination. And then the Neve console is the magic element there also. Oh, no, come on. You're the magic element, really, in that <laughs> equation. I mean, well, I, I'll, get, I'll give due respect to the need, but, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, you moved to uh, in the middle of nowhere in California. Your reputation with, you know, obviously your work that you did with Rick Rubin and uh, doing the Johnny Cash and, and System of a Down and Tool, I mean, that carries, that's currency, I, I have to say. Wouldn't, would, would you agree? Well, you know, something was going on there, but uh, there you might have something there just because I did, I was involved in every project. Even if there were five rooms going, I would be jumping from room to room, uh, overseeing the engineering uh, on uh, the guitars in one room, uh, overseeing the editing on the drums in this room, mm-hmm. tracking drums in the morning, uh, and checking a mix in the uh, on the SSL and, you know, it was, yeah, these were busy, busy days, but wow. I want to dig into that a bit, but I want to, I want to backtrack just a, a little bit and talk a little bit. Let's go back to Los Angeles for a second. Just before moving to weed, your time in Los Angeles, you know, you were making great records. Obviously you addressed your money needs properly because you were able to move to this great place and buy into this town with, you know, ranch and such. 
one doesn't do that if one squanders their money. It, sa- it sounds like you you played it smart. Well, I have to say that the investing in real estate was a, a good move. So pretty much every time that I got a royalty check, I put it into real estate or gear. I bought a second Neve console that uh, I eventually sold, and that helped finance the studio. Selling my Los Angeles house, you know, at the at the time in 97, you know, I think, wow, I'm, I lived here for five years. I made $150,000 on the sale. If I had held on for another five years, I would have made, you know, $700,000. Uh, I was going to say, if you just like let that internet, let that internet bloom just a little yeah. more. But, you know, even then I was able to come up to Northern California and buy a 50 acre ranch with the proceeds from that Los Angeles house. And still have a hundred thousand dollars left over oh, to put yeah. in the studio. So yeah, there were. Uh, I, I have to say there was some luck there. And at the time when albums were selling and you could come up with a, a royalty check, that was a very very good time. I don't see that that's a big thing right now unless you're placing music in film. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do managers and did your manager, did Frank advise you like, hey, here's your first royalty check now. Don't go and blow it all today. Did Was there a little financial advisor position going on there with your manager or not? No, actually, no. But uh, you do this a, a while and you get to see the ebb and flow of money. And, and I love gear. You know, (laughs) (laughs) every, you know, I wasn't like, you know, buying vacations or, you know, fancy cars. I was driving my Opal, uh, my Opal GT. And that's about it. You know, it's just, uh, that was where I put my money was in gear. And then that was actually a really smart thing because I bought all this 
this old broadcast gear that nobody wanted at the time. Uh, the stay levels, the RCA BA6As, these were things that nobody really wanted. And I was buying them from broadcast brokers for $300 a pop. Wow. I bought shipments of them. I had them shipped out from Illinois in huge crates. And then I would kind of pick off the best stuff and sell the rest to my friends at, at reasonable prices, you know. So I was really lucky to have um, to have been around before the eBay revolution. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, and that's that's when things change. Now, let's go back to weed for a sec. So you're in weed, you have this studio, and you're talking about bouncing around in these different rooms. Was there kind of a, a mentorship mentality with you and the, those that worked at Radio Star? Absolutely, yeah. And I had relationships with different schools, and I would really pay attention to these students when they came in to see which one could handle a session, and then I would throw them. I, you know, pretty much would say, here you go. Out of the 70 to 100 interns that I had during the 15 years, only four really had the goods to go all the way, in my opinion. And for me, that person needs to be able to engineer technically uh, handling the session by engineering good sounds and also has to be a people person that can communicate and draw out great performances. They have to be able to mix and that is seems to be the hardest thing that, that uh, only four of all those people that I worked with really could pull it off. A lot of them were great engineers and a lot of them were actually great producers, but there was only... Uh, just less than a handful that could do everything. And those people are super valuable. What a culture shock going from Los Angeles to weed. Yeah. But mentally, I would assume you were prepared for that and kind of open to it. Well, I grew up in Colorado and I was kind of a mountain girl and I had a horse when I was a kid and all that. So there was a kind of a romance to the idea of being out in the in the boonies, you know, and having a ranch and everything. Boy, that burned off, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I live in Ashland, Oregon right now, which is in a beautiful part of the country. But we have restaurants. We have the Shakespeare uh, Festival. There's a university here. You know, there's bars and nightlife and a music scene. And I'm back to civilization again, and I'm really happy to be back. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's good. So I, I understand that you were doing these festivals, and then you had this issue with this councilman who really kind of basically threw a monkey wrench in the system and uh, kind of derailed Radio Star as a result. Oh, yeah. Well, that's quite a story. Uh, the festival, uh, it was the 4 and 20 Blackbird Music Festival, and it was something that I put together one year to kind of say thank you to the community for letting me have this silly studio there in the middle of downtown and take over and crazy kids with blue hair running around all the time. So we invited a bunch of Radio Star clients, alumni, to come back and perform at this festival. We got about 60 bands to play, and it was a one-day festival, and it was fantastic. And we broke even. I, I didn't expect to actually even break even on it. 
but we broke even. And I realized that if we had two days instead of one, basically doubling the, the size of the festival, that we could really make some money. So I went to the city and the city was all game for it. And uh, city planning uh, went on for six months. I hired, uh, you know, a, a big crew and uh, spent about $120,000 on this project. And uh, there's two days before the event, after six months of planning and six months of approvals with the city, the uh, mayor pro tem came in and said, well, you can't charge tickets for this. People have to be able to get in it for free. And pretty much, yeah, uh, pulled the rug out from under us. And yeah, I lost my ass. And pretty much uh, that was the end of my marriage and the studio and everything in one big sweep. That's kind of where that that was a big upheaval. To uh, say the least. Yeah. Uh, lessons learned, you know. The greatest thing about it is that in doing that, now I'm in a much better place now, mentally, physically, uh, the studio's coming back, and I'm actually uh, not completely absorbed in the world of recording anymore. I've actually gotten into my roots, which is art. I paint. I'm writing a book. It's, It's a completely different world, and the fallout from that festival actually it took a year and a half but i took the the city of weed to to court i saw that and i won i mean basically we settled the last day when it was right before it was going to the jury it was a jury trial this was an intense lawsuit uh trial and i learned so much (laughs) being a part of that but uh ultimately yeah they I was able to pay back every debt and I was able to move and the and I was able to sell the theater to a new person who's coming in and putting in another studio. I'm going to help him do that and I'll be able to send projects down there to him. He's going to put in a new Rupert Neve in the uh, the old theater. So Radio Star will continue to live. It's just so many great things are happening right now. I can't even believe it. The lesson learned is that what looks like a disaster and it looks like your world is falling apart. Well, perhaps if you just have faith that in a year or two, things will turn around and you'll know why these things have happened. Yeah. It's, and my life is completely transformed. Yeah. Well, that, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. It's, um, I, I read somewhere it was like, it was a city councilman at the time, uh, could not be held liable for misrepresentation of the city is what I read. And I was like, I was dumbfounded when I read that. I was like, (laughs) wow, how is that possible? But so, so that happened, uh, this person threw a monkey wrench in the, in the whole festival. And obviously in that situation, you, not only do you put out money up front, but you've also made commitments to other people involved. And when the structure falls apart and you don't have the money, everything comes crashing down and and it's very stressful. I, I, I can't imagine the stress you were under. Well, there were so many terrible things about it, but one of the worst things was uh, um, the Sunday after we realized how devastating uh, this was going to be uh, because we weren't able to sell tickets. Even though there was 5,000 people there, and my husband left, uh, and I have not seen him since. You know, wait, except wait, one day in court. <laughs> wait, what? 
what year was that? That was 2012. And yeah. he, he just got up and left, and, and you haven't seen him since. Well, yeah, we're divorced now, but, uh, yeah, I saw him only one time, one day in, in court during the trial. That was it. He disappeared, and I never saw him again. Was it was it just like overwhelming the? Yeah, yeah. It was. A, I think we both had a nervous breakdown at that point. I mean, it. You know, and that's that's kind of where I'm working on a book now. But the next book that I'll be writing is going to be called the the collateral damage of big art. Oh man! And really, it's about what happens to people when they try to do big things, and and it happens. Uh, to all of us, you know, if we want to do big projects, we push the rest of our lives out of the picture. And, and eventually things happen like your, your power bill, you know, you don't pay the power bill and the power gets turned off or, you know, the car gets repossessed or, you know, these things, because we're so focused on, on the big art that we're trying to create. And here, this is an example of, uh, you know, doing something big and, when it when it crashes, it crashes. Boy, it crashes and burns. You know, uh, I for a period of time from 2007 to 2012, I had taken over the old Coast Recorders building and ran it as Broken Radio Studios, and yes, uh, and yes. I, and I came very very close to getting a divorce as a result wow. of my intense focus with blinders on. So when you talk about collateral damage, I I completely identify with what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It happens, you know, and it's happened over uh, the this span of history. If you think of like Mozart and Beethoven and how their lives were just shit, you know, <laughs> ultimately. And uh, Van Gogh or Van Gogh, however you want to pronounce his name, the artist who, uh, uh, you know, they, these these artists, they're they're making brilliant work but their lives are just chaos, you know? As a person who's kind of come out on the other side of what could be classified as quite the crisis in one's life, loss of studio, loss of relationship, very intense time. I mean, I, I read through all that material and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't imagine what that was like. So now you're on the other side of it, you're writing a book, I'm sure that's that's very cathartic, but what can you say to those of us who maybe haven't gone through such a disastrous period and come out on the other side? Uh, what can you advise to the rest of us? What would you say? Well, yeah, and, and it would be that you have to have faith that what looks dark today will turn around. If you consider that life is a sine wave and the bottom of the wave seems very dark and deep but imagine the deeper that bottom is the higher the high is going to be on the other side and that's what i'm looking forward to is really hitting that high you know when you're going through a dark time in life just relish it this is a life experience you might feel horrible and have a hole in your gut that's just that you just feel like it's the end but really relish that feeling and don't numb it out. Feel it, you know, because mm -hmm. it's part of life. Life is pretty special. Even the bad days are good days, you know, so really live it. And don't be afraid to step out on a limb because something bad might happen. You know, uh, there's a, the idea that uh, mistakes are 
uh, I, I, let's see, I interviewed Ross Robinson the other day, and I have to just read a little bit. I think I have his thing right here. Uh, Ross Robinson talking about mistakes. Ross Robinson, um, a producer, and he produced corn the first two corn records okay and he produced uh the first limb biscuit record and he produced the first slipknot record i consider him to be one of the most groundbreaking producers because he's extremely unconventional in his approach for recording and he's not afraid to one of the things that he does with singers even like jonathan davis from corn uh, during vocals, he would be in the in the room with him and dig his hands, uh, dig his fingers into Jonathan's sides as he sang to get the most intense screams out of him. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And if I could just find them, let me see if I can find this. That, that is quite unconventional. Yeah. He's very special. But what he says about mistakes, if I can find it, and I'm going through this manuscript. I'm writing this book for uh, for Hal Leonard Publishing. It's called Recording Unhinged, and it'll be out in um, January of next year at NAM. And it's uh, it's really about the 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 crazy things that happen in the studio and unconventional techniques and uh, stories about crazy things happening in the studio. Not not the dirt, not the the uh, so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so kind of thing. This is more about like the techniques for getting a certain type of vocal performance and how to build a microphone out of uh, tin can and these kind of uh, un- unusual things. But here it is. This is what Ross Robinson says about mistakes. He says... Mistakes are God, non-resistance. A mistake is the unknown coming through, the unknown that was never, ever, ever planned. A lot of times it'll turn into something that you can build off of. It could be a beat or a vocal or anything, a breath. It's endless how many mistakes end up on finished records. I can't even begin to think. And I tell people as we're tracking, it might be tight in there. It might not be there yet. And I'll point to the drummer and say, I want you to make a mistake. I want you to fuck up. I want you to fuck up so much. And the more you fuck up, what am I going to feel? And the band says, happy. And I'm like, yep. And it's crazy. It should be a golden rule of recording to encourage mistakes because it creates a perfect take more times than not. The mistakes just go away. I encourage mistakes and then they don't happen. So that's that when when I when I looked at that and then I thought well you can apply that to so much in your life you encourage mistakes because in, it, mistakes create inspiration and if you don't if you don't put yourself out on a limb and take a chance you'll never know uh, you could really change the world with with uh, with your mistakes <laughs> in a positive way. You yeah. Know. But you'll never know if you don't try. Well, and and I wouldn't categorize your time in weed as mistakes, but I guess 
would you say mistakes were made in that time that ultimately led to where you're at now? Absolutely. I mean, I, I could, my, my manager now, Chris Johnson, would say, absolutely, <laughs> there were mistakes made. But I'm so glad that, uh, that it led me here right now. Your website, it's quite full of a lot of different uh, avenues, your book, uh, books, I, I mean, I should say plural, because you, you mentioned there, there's, there's a second one as well on the, on the horizon, recording, artwork, uh, obviously a look back at some of the, you know, the past stuff. I see the, the festival stuff that was, um, you know, a gallery from the, the stuff you did in Weed. And then obviously you're still recording and making records. Yeah. Now that you've come out on the other side of what I can only describe as quite a journey, really, do you approach the record making process differently now with all that you've learned, not just from making records, but just these life lessons? Well, one thing that I, I do now that I didn't really do before is I very, very carefully choose the projects that I work on. And maybe it's because I have the luxury of doing that because up here in Oregon, the overhead is so much lower than it was in L.A., where I would I would jump from project to project, mainly because I wanted to make sure my house was paid for or whatever. Yeah. But here it's a much easier pace. So I'm doing projects that are fulfilling to me. I'm s still trying to touch areas of recording that I haven't gone into before. And that's like this week we're doing a, uh, a Baroque orchestra. So what is a Baroque, Baroque orchestra? It's, it's they use different instruments that are ancient instruments uh, it's a 25-piece orchestra, and we're going to to make room for them here. And I'm going to use a technique I've never used before. It's a decatry, and this is what are, what's used in uh, in film scoring, you know. And well, a decatry, and I'm doing research on it. This is something that Al Schmidt told me about. So we have to build an adapter so that we can put our mics up on a decatry. Uh, a proper decatry, and we're going to do it. And uh, we bought materials to build this apparatus yesterday. Uh, we're going to build it before the session on Saturday. This is going to be so great to learn something new. My mind is still expanding, so I get to pick and choose my projects. This is an area that I've never stepped into before. I'll, I'll be doing a, a project this summer in a castle in Germany, in Dresden, Wow. Uh, yeah, and this is it's going to be a nickel harpa uh ensemble. Uh-huh. And if you it, have you heard of a nickel harpa, you know what that is, a nickel harpa? No, I have not a clue. <laughs> it's a basically a viola that's played with keys and uh, and it's a it's a Swedish traditional instrument. It's quite beautiful and very folksy. Uh, but it's got a, a distinct sound and uh, a character. Um, so this will be a, a really magic moment there in, in a castle in uh, Germany. And so uh, I'm going to have fun with that. Plus, the uh, it looks like uh, there will be some other European dates, too, and perhaps some workshops that I'll be conducting in Europe. So, and I And this is very satisfying for me to be able to share 
my knowledge with people in different ways. And that's, that's what I want to do now too, you know, is, is do some workshops and do some writing and, and really get to know people on a different level. We, we have a mutual friend in Ross Hogarth and, uh, uh Ross and I talked the other day and, uh, and it seems that you two share a, a passion for mentorship, education, really um, basically sharing what you've learned. Yeah, and it's a scary thing, too, because I know he feels the same way. We don't want to represent that the industry is full of jobs for, for anybody. You know, you have to have special skills to get a foothold in the industry. Plus, I don't know that the, there's big big money anymore the 90s the 70s and 80s there was a whole different uh, there was there were whole uh, entirely different opportunities to make money um, that really aren't there now so when you teach people the art of recording you have to be very careful to to give them a dose of reality at the same time let's say you had a uh, a person you were mentoring what dose of reality would you give them? Like, how would if would you tell them not to get into recording, or would you like would you tell them to diversify, which seems to be quite common these days with a lot of people? Yes, I think diversification is a very smart thing to do. Susan Rogers, who was Prince's engineer for years, uh, had some had a great insight on it. In that, if you want to be successful. In the music engineering side of it, or production, develop your own special skill that nobody else has. Make yourself really valuable. And whatever that is, it might be that you're a programmer. Maybe you're uh, an IT person that can find their way through uh, computer problems. Or a website designer. These kind of skills, if you have that in addition to being a good engineer and knowing that equipment and those the engineering skills and production skills, you become that much more valuable. And I think that will give you an edge also in getting started in the music industry. Going back just a little bit, it's funny you mentioned you're going to do something you've never done before, and that's a decatry. If you take somebody else who's who's got uh, a lot of experience such as you like leslie ann jones you two uh like i'm sure leslie uses a decatry like every other day yeah yeah you, you two have had very successful paths but yet very different techniques have got you and different styles of music obviously different approaches have got you to where you're at yeah you know there's a funny story about leslie ann jones i used to live in san francisco and uh, she was working there at the Automat with Maureen Droney. Yeah. And they were both engineers there, working with Santana and Jefferson Airplane. And uh, I was a nobody, and I couldn't even get in the front door of those places, but I really wanted to be an engineer. So I would sit out in the parking lot with my friend, who was the parking lot attendant and, and for the Automat, and I'd sit there and watch Leslie and Maureen um, go in to work every day. And I would just think, hey, those those girls are doing this. I can do this, you know. If they can do it, I can do it. So Leslie became a very early inspiration for me. The aspect of being a female engineer in a very 
a male-dominated field. Do you have a philosophy about that? I do, actually. You know, strangely enough, when I was uh, starting out, it never even occurred to me that there was an, a difference or, or there was um, limits to what women could do in the industry because I was watching these women going to work at the studios every day. So it, at least for me, there was no restriction. I think there are women that feel... Uh, maybe, you know, uh, young engineers that feel discriminated against. But honestly, I think it's difficult for everybody, men and women, everybody to get started. And I think that women, when they come up against the, the same difficulties that the men come up against, they look at it and go, well, I have other opportunities. I have other outlets here, I, you know, and they're, they're may, they just have better things to do with their time. <laughs> maybe the women are a little smarter, you know. Yeah, I well, I, I won't argue with you there. <laughs> I mean, maybe men are just more myopic. Yeah, and and I don't know what happened to me personally, but uh, but I kind of stuck with it and, and um, made it my life. I encourage women to uh, get into it, but it is, it's a... Uh, it may be 15 years before you really get get a chance to do something substantial. Mm-hmm. That's a long time to wait. And there's, you know, there's other creative outlets for women too, you know, besides, you know, writing music or being a performer, uh, sound for film. Um, so there's, there's other opportunities too. In your experience over the years, did anybody ever walk into a room and go, oh, you're the engineer? You know, I never had that. Actually, I, I don't think I've ever had a situation. Well, you got to understand that I'm pretty mouthy. I don't <laughs> boss anybody around, you know, so right away I'll disarm any kind of situation there might be just with my foul language. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, I honestly, I've been very fortunate to, not to come up against problems. Mm-hmm. I have had a bit of a problem, you know, when I was first in L.A., there was one studio owner who said, no, nah, we don't hire women. We don't hire them because they're a distraction. Oh, uh, wow. I'm a friend of that person. I can't name them, but, I, uh, but I've talked to them since then. And now we're actually friends, you know, uh, and I, I don't know what he was thinking that day, but. He's evolved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just a parting thought now. You took a path of leaving the Bay Area, moving to Los Angeles, and then went to more uh, remote or semi-rural locales. Do you think in this day and age, moving to uh, a place like an, a Nashville, New York, or L.A. is a is critical in one's recording life? That question comes up again and again, and I suggest for any young wannabe professional, you don't have to be young, <laughs> But anyone who's wanting to really get going at it, there are more opportunities in Los Angeles and Nashville and New York City. It's much harder to, to, to stick it out, though. And I think it takes at least two years before you actually start getting gigs that make a difference. Uh-huh. But I think there's, there's more musicians, obviously. There's clubs. There's, there are studios so Austin, Texas, Orlando, Florida, Seattle. I, I think that the metropolitan areas are still going to be better for recording opportunities. At the point when you've gotten your discography together, 
then head out to the hills and and uh, make the most fabulous studio of your dreams and keep the overhead low so that you know if no one floats around in, into your space that it, you're still going to be doing all right you know what i mean obviously it's a common thing that those who think you know in business terms naturally think and it seems like in the recording world we engineers and producers don't always think that way first and and sometimes that gets us into trouble yeah keep your overhead low <laughs> well this has been great sylvia i really appreciate you taking the time to be on my show and all uh, right matt you know i think a lot of people will get a lot of great information out of this and it's very helpful and it's uh, I appreciate you, you know, not being afraid to kind of talk about the the darker stuff. Hey, well, uh, it's it's actually cathartic to be able to talk about it a little bit. <laughs> well, fantastic. All right. Well, you take care. You have a wonderful day. And uh, thank you so much. You bet, Matt. All right. Take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Okay, bye. bye, -bye. Another great interview. Thank you, Sylvia Massey. And thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to listen. I know I say it every time, and I know I sound like a broken record, but I first of all, I appreciate everybody's uh, messages and support, and uh, everybody really seems to be enjoying the show. And that's great. It's, it's, it's super amazing. I'm very excited about that, which is part of the reason why we're going to the, you know, the once-a-week model. Remember, spread the word. Get people on over to Facebook and Twitter, and uh, let's keep the momentum building. And there you have it. Thanks for tuning in. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.